You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Today's lectionary reading that I'm forced to preach from against my will, and we'll see how awesome that is, is a very famous story found in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 4 through 20. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her. Does anybody have somebody like that in their life? (laughs) Because the Lord had closed her womb. We are so real at Salem Tabernacle. It is, I think even God is surprised sometimes. Like, wow, you guys are honest. So it went on year by year, not day by day. Year by year, Hannah endured this. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Let's remember he said that. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the east beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him back to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head." As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Has anybody been so broken that the best you can do is move your lips? Therefore, Eli, being a wonderful pastor, took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, Trusting in his first opinion far too much. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. This is an interesting way to talk to somebody who just falsely accused you. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my grief out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. He didn't know what she prayed. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked him from the Lord. And the story will go on to say that she lent him back after he was weaned. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying today. Anoint this entire room, that preaching would be made easy, and hearing your word would be a delight to the soul. And I pray that your hand would be on every church in Beacon and on every house of worship, that every single one of us who are honestly pursuing you would have a face-to-face encounter with Jesus today. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The past two sermons 
were part of a review of the very first sermon series I preached when I took over as pastor. And it's this idea of sowing, waiting, and reaping. And I want to say this about the lectionary. We, I have committed to allowing the lectionary schedule, a pre-planned three-year cycle of texts given on Sundays. There's four every single Sunday. One from the Old Testament, one from the Psalm, one from the New Testament, and one from the Gospel. And I've committed to choosing one of those four texts, no matter what it is that I feel like I'm supposed to preach. And so if I'm wanting to preach about joy, I will read those four texts and I will work out how to preach about joy in light of those texts. And so what this does is this allows me the space to preach what I feel the Spirit is telling me to preach, but it also gives me some edges to live inside so I'm not fully trusting myself, which is really good for all of you. I promise you. I decided because it's pastorally logical to review your vision for the year in November. And so I decided to preach sowing, waiting, and reaping. Now, in 2014... When God was speaking to Jacqueline's life and my life about waiting, he gave us Psalm 127. In 2014, Psalm 127 was the psalm that God gave us to teach us about waiting. Unless God builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I decided because of pastoral logistics to preach sowing, waiting, and reaping in November. And when I got to waiting, I opened up my lectionary schedule and there was Psalm 127 waiting for me last week. It's not dead when you're alive. Any portion of scripture given to you at any time, if you're alive, will speak to you. The issue is not, is the liturgy dead or is the lectionary dead? The issue is, are we alive or dead? So I open up for today because we did letting go. We did sowing two weeks ago. We did waiting. And now we have, we have a, a sermon for today. And I read this story and I thought, oh my goodness gracious, in the story that was pre-planned for hundreds of years for today, it's the story of Hannah. Two weeks ago, we preached, what if we actually let go? And we talked about letting go in the context of letting go of all of those things that keeps us from a committed, consistent relationship with our local church. And I ranted and raved for like an hour and a half. It was like a 59-minute sermon of me just yelling at everybody about commitment to the church because it's that important. And if I don't restrain myself, I'll re-preach that message right now. And then I read this text for today. And year by year, Hannah was grieved in her spirit. Year by year, she wasn't getting what she wanted. Year by year, whenever she went to the church, she was getting falsely accused and treated horribly by somebody she knew. And year by year, she did all her wrestling in the house of God. Hannah learned to actually let go. That's not an accident that that's in there for today. All of her wrestling happened in the church Every year that God perceivably let her down, she didn't blame the house of God. Every time somebody in the house of God falsely accused her of something, she didn't blame the house of God. She said, no matter how bad it hurts, I'm going to wrestle with my vexation and my anxiety and my grief in this house. And year by year, she took that long, lonely journey to the church 
and wrestled and wept and emptied herself out, but she did it faithfully in the church. Hannah learned to actually let go. Nothing, even her greatest disappointments, kept her from the house of God. Holy Spirit, teach us to be like Hannah. Then the next message was, what if we actually learn to wait? Everybody's favorite topic to hear preached. Think about the arduous waiting of Hannah. Let's just fast forward to when God actually said, I'm going to meet with you, and I'm going to grant you your petition. There's a verse where her husband says to you, why are you weeping? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And for a lot of times, I've heard this preached as a very positive remark by Hannah's husband, but I'm going to argue right now that it was actually an innocently negative thing for him to say. She is in the deep anguish of grief because there's something she feels she's supposed to have that she doesn't. And her husband innocently, not maliciously, innocently says, why are you weeping? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? And here's the reality. If you've ever been in the anguish of grief and somebody has come and flippantly told you that you should just feel better, no one knows how frustrating that is unless you're that person. If you're the one who can't get out of your own way, you're broken, you're disillusioned, you're grieving, you're tired, you're sad, and somebody comes and says, you know, if you would just trust God more, this would be over. And you're enraged because they just don't know unless you're in the thralls of it. Job's three friends did it for 38 chapters and God rebuked him for doing it. He was trying, but It didn't even scratch the surface of her grief. And then she's falsely accused, which to me, this is one of the most exciting moments in the Bible because of what happens in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the church, and the church starts to act drunk. People say, why are they all drinking? And we love it in Acts chapter 2 because we say that when the Holy Spirit falls on us, we can get so excited and so crazy that we can look like we're intoxicated. And anybody who's ever been intoxicated said, nice, I thought I was going to trick you right there. (laughs) Waiting for that one person to be like, amen, dang it, why did I? (laughs) We love when we look drunk in celebration with the Holy Spirit, but Hannah teaches us that the Holy Spirit can fill us so much even in our vexation that we look drunk. That there is an equal opportunity to encounter the dynamos, the power of the Holy Spirit, both in celebration and in grief. As much as the Holy Spirit will fill you with joy, he will fill you with endurance when you're suffering. There is no difference between Hannah's being filled with the Holy Spirit and her vexation as there was with the apostles being filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. He shows up as mightily and as powerfully in our celebration and in our grief. If you're grieving, you're not waiting for the Holy Spirit. He's on you. If you're feeling, dealing with depression, you're not waiting for the Holy Spirit. He's on you. If you're despairing about a promise that God has given you that hasn't been fulfilled yet, you're not waiting for the Holy Spirit. He's on you. As much as when you see somebody jumping and twirling, he's on you as much when you're on your face weeping. When she was falsely accused while she was waiting, she spoke to God before she spoke to Eli. Read the text carefully. She spoke to God before she spoke to anybody. Everything she said to a person was after she tithed her words to God. 
When she gave God the first portion of her opinion, then she was free to give it to other people, and it was humble, it was submissive, and God answered it. I know, hon, I need to write that one down for myself. It's so convicting pastoring, because I'm like, there is a witness in the room. So we preached on sowing. What if we actually let go? We preached on waiting. What if we actually learned to wait? And today we have to talk about this terrifying moment. What if we actually got blessed? Merry Christmas. What if we actually got blessed? See, after the promise was given to Hannah, but before the fulfillment, she worshipped and she ate. She knew how to let go and how to wait well. So she knew how to handle that blessing when it came. She says, if you give, then I will give back. If you give me a son, I will give him back to you. I want everyone to see this graphic that we're going to put up now. It's the sowing cycle. We sow. We wait. We reap. And then we sow our harvest again. We don't just get one harvest for the rest of our life. We constantly have to re-sow our blessings and the process starts over again. In the book of Revelation, it says this, that in the kingdom of heaven, when Jesus comes back, there will be trees that are on either side of the river of life and they will be for the healing of the nations. And it says there will always be fruit on those trees. So only when Jesus comes back and only when he restores the earth will the process of sowing, waiting, and reaping end because there will always be fruit. But while we're here left to wait, we will always be sowing, we will always be waiting, and we will always be reaping, and then we will have to be sowing what we reap. You don't just get one harvest and leave. That's why all those TV evangelists is absolute garbage. You get a lot of harvest in your life, and you sow every one of them back. Because Hannah let go and waited, she was able to sow her blessing. Because listen to this. If we don't let go... And if we don't learn to wait, we will immediately assume the worst thing in the world, that our blessings are for us. Let that simmer for a minute. It won't feel good. If we don't learn to let go, if we're constantly controlling outcomes, and we don't learn to wait, we're constantly impatient, we will get blessed and we will immediately think God blessed us to keep that blessing. James 4.3 says this, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on yourself. Blessings that show up in your life Marriages, children, healing, promotions, new cars, new houses, all of it. They're not for you. They're for everybody else. My blessings are for you. Yours are for me. I got a lesson from somebody from the food pantry yesterday. Somebody who stood online waiting for food that may be a more mature Christian than I'll ever be in my entire life. I'll wait until the end for effect. Let's visit Mary, the mother of Jesus, for a moment as we prepare and wet the palate for Christmas time. 
Let's meet her in the temple when she's getting ready to leave, packs up all of her blessings, packs up all of her stuff, gets halfway home and realizes she forgot one thing. Anybody see Home Alone 1? Kevin! I watch Home Alone 1 before Christmas time, and everybody gets mad at me, and they say it's a Christmas movie, and I say, no, it's not. It's a movie about bad parents. (laughs) Maybe you forgot to unplug the toaster. Maybe you left the garage. No, you left your son home twice. Poor Kevin. Mary and Joseph have this Home Alone moment. They were the first real Home Alone. The first Home Alone for us is actually Home Alone 2. Now pause. They realize they left Jesus in the temple. Pause. Let's go back to when God announced Jesus for them. In Luke 1, it says this, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And in Matthew, the Holy Spirit says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God did not promise Mary and Joseph a son. He promised them a savior. He came out son. And they needed to walk through a lot of life to cultivate so that he would become a savior. Mary loses her blessing Jesus when he's 12. She loses her blessing. She can't find him anywhere. She looks through all of her relatives She looks everywhere for him. She assumes that he's with somebody else. She does all the things wrong and then finally realizes he's been in the church the whole time. Let's go back to our first series in this. What if we actually learn to let go? The church is the place that always has your blessings. The church is where the best thing in your life always will be. If you can't find it, it's because you're not here enough. This room is the greenhouse where every blessing of God will grow, and it won't grow anywhere else. This is the perfect atmosphere in right conditions. The right amount of water, the right amount of sun, the right amount of waiting happens in the household of God. Mary's blessing is waiting for her. She's not trying to find him. He's waiting for her to teach her her first lesson. This is where you find everything. What does Mary's blessing say to her? Mom? How did you not know that I was supposed to be about my father's business? Why is that amazing? Just pretend it's not Jesus. Just pick any blessing and imagine it was talking to you. That blessing looks at you and says, you thought I was supposed to be about your business. You thought that promotion was about your business. It was about my father's business. You thought that baby that you miraculously had was about your business. It's about my father's business. You thought that car that you really wanted was about your business. It's about my father's business. Take any blessing you've ever waited for in your life. When it shows up and you inevitably lose it because you will, when you find it here, it will say to you, how did you not know? You thought I was given to you for you. I've been given to you for my father in heaven. That's what our blessings are always saying to us. Mary had to essentially... At that moment, even though she took him home, at that moment she realized what Hannah realized. This child needs to stay in the temple forever. 
it's funny to me that Samuel was born and had to serve a corrupt priesthood that easily could have killed him. And then Mary has a baby, and he's left in the temple at a corrupt priesthood that will kill him. Hannah had to replant Jesus in the house of God just like Mary did. They got a son. And the son was supposed to be in both stories so much more than just a son. Samuel was meant to become a prophet and Jesus was meant to become savior. And so often we receive our blessing and we receive it as if it was given to us in whole. As if the thing that we got was the final thing that we were meant to get out of that blessing. But when you replant your blessings, when you let go of them again, they become what they were always meant to be. And it's so much more that eye has not seen nor has ear heard. I had to give up and let go of and wait for the calling to pastor. This was not a plan. <laughs> this is I has not seen nor ear heard from me. Every time I pull up to this place, I'm like, God, you have got to be kidding me still. Still? <laughs> they have not changed the locks yet? Still? You can't plan. God is so elaborate, you cannot plan for what he wants to give you. There's some very important points coming. How do we sow our harvest back into God. Number one, being more thankful than frustrated. You ready? If our frustration over what we don't have is more intense than our thanksgiving over what we do have, we're not thankful, we're just being polite. I've said thank you for things that I really didn't like. Socks. Thank you. That's just being polite. I'm more annoyed about what I didn't get than what I had. When we're more broken than we are joyful, when we grumble more than we say thank you, we're actually not thankful for the things that we have. We're just trying to be polite with them. Thanksgiving is not an emotion. Just like hope and just like love, Thanksgiving is a discipline. If love was an emotion, we'd fall out of it a lot. But when love is a discipline, we can stay in it unconditionally. If hope was merely an emotion, we would give in to positivity all the time. But when hope is a discipline, hope can go past where positivity fails. Thanksgiving is not something you're supposed to feel. It's something you're supposed to say. It's something you're supposed to work on. It's something you're supposed to discipline yourself for. It's something you're supposed to fast for. It's something you're supposed to fight for. It's something you're supposed to take. The grief in your life shouldn't be something you rebuke. The grief in your life should be a tutor teaching you how to be thankful for things. Whenever you feel really frustrated and you start complaining about blessings, think of the people on the food line at, at St. Francis. Discipline yourself to not, have you heard the phrase, take a thought captive? We have meant that means to rebuke thoughts. That's not what it means. When you take something captive, you don't rebuke it. You hold on to it and interrogate it. 
Has anybody watched like crime shows and stuff, like Person of Interest, CSI, all these shows? When they capture somebody, they say, who gave you that information? They don't just kill them right away. They ask questions first. But we kill our thoughts right away, and we don't say, what business did you have being in my head, thought? How did you rise up over against the knowledge of Jesus Christ, thought? Where did you come from in the middle of Thanksgiving trying to mess with my praise? Where'd that come from? And when your thought tries to run, no, 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 you're not. Paul, shut that door. Don't let that thought out. I'm not done asking you questions yet. I have more questions. Why did I have that opinion about that person? No, 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 thought. Come back. Sit down. Stay in the corner. You're in timeout. I need to think about this for a second. Take it captive. Don't rebuke it. Get information from it. Learn from it. Be a disciple of Jesus with your bad thoughts. Don't just be like Eli Manning and huck it everywhere with your eyes closed. I am so frustrated. Like, you guys have no idea. It's the worst. It is just the worst. It's teaching me how to be thankful for the other things in my life. The object of our thanksgiving, and listen to me, the object of our frustration should always be God. If things are the object of your joy, it's a problem. And if things are the object of your frustration, it's a problem. God should always be the object of your joy, and God should always be the object of your frustration. He wants to be the object of your frustration because he's trying to frustrate you. And how do I know that? I'm standing here today. To be proof that God is always trying to frustrate you somehow, some way, because he's trying to tease the best of you out of you, but he's got to get past a whole bunch of garbage first, and he'll do it to us all the time. And we have to learn to be thankful for what we have in the thralls of our grief of what we don't. What's another way that we sow our harvest back to God? Having our receiving reflex be giving. There's this great story. At two jobs ago, my last job was cool. I worked at Allstate Insurance Company. I got to argue claims for a living. I got paid to argue. Fantastic. Great fit for me. It was just a great little fit. Before that, I worked, I did event planning and stuff at a daycare center in Westchester. So my job was to raise money. So this one time, they wanted me to dress up like Rudolph. I was unhappy about this because I'm far too cool for that. So I did, <laughs> caved in, and my boss was trying to put, like, a hoof on my foot. And I said to her, I love you, but please don't touch my foot. Let me put it on. She's like, you got to hurry up. So I'm, like, standing there like this, and she accidentally tickles the bottom of my foot, and I kicked her in the face. <laughs> By accident. No, I'm just kidding. I kicked her in the face. And she had a black eye for like six weeks. I'm not lying. I'm not embellishing. I kicked her in the face. Right directly in the face. I said sorry. Dressed like Rudolph. It was a horribly awkward situation. I'm like, I'm really sorry. Like a red nose. I'm just... She tickled my foot, and my immediate reflex, beyond any ability I had to control it, was to kick. It should be the same way when God blesses us. 
immediately generosity. Right in somebody's face. Immediately. The world should have black eyes because we're throwing stuff at them all the time. Take it, take it, take it, take it. Every time he blesses us, testimony. Every time he blesses us, praise report. Every time he answers a prayer, I'm going to pray for you. Every time he blesses us financially, here's a gift for no reason. All the time, our reflex should be just to fire something back at somebody. Good black eyes. The third way that we sow our harvest is giving our blessings time to grow. Because the blessing that you have is not finished yet. When Hannah says, when it says at the end that she gave Samuel to the Lord, it's the word lent. She lent him to the Lord. This is very interesting. Because you only lend things that you own. Hannah says before the blessing, I'll give him to you. When she gets it and goes to give it, the Bible, not Hannah, says she lent him to the Lord. We have to be students of the scripture when we read these little nuances. We have to be. For some reason, Hannah's intention was to give to God Samuel. But when she actually brings him, it says that she lent him. Which means something amazing happened here. It was only when Hannah gave Samuel that, she act- that Samuel actually became hers. If you don't give something to God, it, you possess it, but you don't have it. The minute you're willing to give something to God, Abraham and Isaac, it immediately becomes yours. The only things that can be ours, the only blessings that can actually be ours are ones that we give back. If there's something in your life you're holding on to, it doesn't belong to you until you're willing to not hold on to it anymore. It will only be yours when you're willing to give it up. We can, that's why Jesus, he's the author of life, because he has life, and he has life only because he was willing to give it. So an example, if we don't tithe, then according to God, we have no money. And every time we spend money that according to God we don't have, this is why in Malachi he calls it robbing, because I'm spending money that doesn't belong to me. It's when I'm willing to give that it actually belongs to me. This kills It's why we dedicate babies. It's why we work to not be helicopter parents and not hover over Sophia's life and let her go and let her drive with different people. Even though we have these fears that something could happen, we let her go because if we hold on to her, she'll never actually be ours. If we're really going to enjoy her life, it has to be we have to learn to let go. We have to learn to wait so that we can actually give her up. There's a story that Bishop Mike Owen told me on the phone a few weeks ago. And it's a story about how when God gives you something, he's not done giving you that thing yet. And the story goes like this. Some people have heard this story. I'm getting to that point and age where I start repeating myself, so whatever. But here's the story. He said there was a pastor who had his elders over. 
and he's having an elder meeting at his house. So me, Elder Bill, Elder Ron, Elder Paul, Elder George, all in the house. And all of a sudden, God tells this pastor, right now, stand up. So he's sitting down, and he stands up at the table. Hopefully, they were Pentecostal. They were like, oh, he just got the spirit. This is going to be a good meeting. (laughs) Then God says, so he's still talking, and then God says, go to the door of the room. So he goes to the door of the room, still talking. And God says, now go to the front door of the house. So he goes to the front door of the house. And now the elders get up, and they're like, what is he doing? We were just talking about, like, church finances or something, and now he's at the door. And he gets to the door, and God says to him, go stand in the street, middle of the street. So he goes and stands in the middle of the street. So now the elders are like, we might need a new pastor. (laughs) And then God says, run as fast as you can to the end of your street. So he just takes off and runs. At this point, like, you ever been so in deep with something crazy, you just go all the rest of the way in anyway? Doesn't matter anymore. I'm dressed like Rudolph, so might as well kick my boss, right? Like, you just... He runs to the end of the street, which on, at his house is a dock. And he's standing there, and God says, jump in the water. And he jumps in the water. And in the water, God says, look to your left. And he looks to his left, and his five-year-old son was drowning. He saves his son. Days later, he hears one of his elders say this. Right in the, listen carefully, right in the middle of an elder meeting, God told our pastor to save his son. And the pastor says, that's not what happened. God told me to stand up. He never once told me to save my son. He said, stand up. And then he said, go to the door. And then he said, go to the door of the house. And then he said, stand in the road. And then he said, run and jump in the water and look to your left. He never told me to save my son. And the pastor said, here's what I know about God now. Every time he blesses you with something or gives you revelation, that story is not done yet. There's so much more left. Never think, always know, everything God gives you and everything he says to you is part of a long story that's not over yet. It's not over yet. Let your blessings grow. Mary had a son who turned into a savior. And if she helicoptered him as a son, he never would have turned into a savior. Hannah had a son that was supposed to be a prophet, and if she refused to give him back to that corrupt temple, Samuel would have never anointed David, who Jesus was in the house and lineage of David. Let your, the minute God blesses you, don't just pull it up out of the ground and run with it. Let it grow. If you take your blessing too early, it's useful. If you let it sit in the ground for a bit, it becomes fruitful. So I'm standing at this food pantry with this on my mind. I'm standing at this food pantry yesterday. And they, there's maybe 50 volunteers in there. And before people come in, they said, Paul, the guy who runs it, says to this other guy, hey, you know, Rick, can you pray? And Rick goes, there's a guy here with a collar. Let him pray. <laughs> so I pray. Then they asked me, like, once everybody gets going, they asked me to pray for this one woman who just had surgery on her eye, so I pray for her. And then I realized, you know what? The guys are doing a great job handing out food. I'm going to stay in here with all of these people coming in, all of these people who are dealing with trials that I'll never face in my life. I'm just going to stay in here. I'm going I'm to compliment the volunteers, and if people see me wearing this and they want me to pray, I just want to be available. And all of a sudden, this one person comes in off the bread line. And the guy who runs the food pantry stops everything. 
And he, he yells. He goes, everyone, Frankie's here. This guy in a hoodie getting food for his family. And he says, Frank, you thought I forgot. But I remember today's your birthday. <sighs> Chills. They come out with a cake. And the whole room sings happy birthday to this guy. I'm belting it out. I can't even sing. Even the people on the line are singing to him. And it dawns on me there. I think the people, I think these poor people on this bread line are less stressed than I've ever been on a line at ShopRite. They have nothing to lose, and they're so joyful. I have so much to lose, and I'm annoyed 95% of the time. We can giggle at that, but that is convicting. There is more freedom and joy on that bread line than there is at the express checkout line when you're sitting there saying, that woman has 18 items, not 12. <laughs> but watch this. They sing happy birthday to him. He takes the cake and he's crying. Everyone goes about their business again. And I'm watching him from across the room. And he walks over. This is where I realized I'm not a good Christian. He walks over to one of the volunteers. And I'm, he's, he's this far away from me now. And I'm just standing there, like, trying to cover up my collar because I'm horrible. And he's like, hey, you see that kid on the line? And we look over, and there's, like, a nine-year-old kid on the line. And the attendant says, yeah, I see him. And this guy, Frank, says, can you give him this cake? And they go over and they bring it to the kid and he starts crying. He got blessed and he sowed his blessing right away. Let's stand to our feet this morning. question is, how do we get to the place where we can become poor enough to be able to just freely part with what we have? And the answer is the Lord's table. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.